What's up, guys? Leah Pika here. Today's guest is a legend in the digital analytics field whose wisdom seems practically heaven sent. Stay tuned to find out who's making a cameo on the Present Beyond Measure Show, episode 44. Welcome to the Present Beyond Measure Show, a podcast at the intersection of analytics, data visualization, and presentation awesomeness. You'll learn the best tips, tools, and techniques for creating analytics visualizations and presentations that inspire data-driven decisions and move you forward. If you're ready to get your insights understood and acted upon, you're in the right place. And now your host, Leah Pika. Hey guys, welcome to the 44th episode of the Present Beyond Measure show, the only podcast at the intersection of presentation, data visualization, and analytics. This is the place to be if you're ready to make maximum impact and create credibility through thoughtfully presented insights. So, We're heading into summer. It's going to be amazing. I just wrapped a live run of my Inspiring Insights Data Storytelling Virtual Boot Camp, and the reception was awesome. It's just such an incredible experience to witness the breakthroughs that practitioners have when they see the most common patterns that they're making when presenting their insights and really effective strategies for overcoming those. So I'm planning on probably just one more live run in July, and then I may never offer it live again because I'm starting to move on to bigger and more interesting projects. So if you're interested in getting up close and personal with me and my proven toolbox for telling compelling data stories that inspire action, please go to leahpika.com slash bootcamp to sign up for the wait list. And I just signed on to do a keynote at the Nonprofit Innovation Summit this coming September in Denver. So if you're interested in seeing the PICA protocol applied to conversion rate optimization and testing scenarios, you'll definitely want to get registered because there's some brand new content in there that I'm really excited to show for my CRO peeps. And the link to register will be in the show notes page. I've heard it is an incredible event. So definitely check that out if you're in the Western area. The podcast has also been privileged to get some really amazing new reviews recently. I'm really, really humbled. Uh, Christy Lyons writes, perfect for anyone who wants to grow in the data viz, data storytelling and presenting arenas. She writes, this podcast is excellent. Not only does Leah interview top people in the data viz, presentation, and storytelling world, she also does solo shows that are chock full of wisdom for communication, connection, and tools for personal and professional growth. I highly recommend her podcast to anyone, but especially for those who want to be better presenters, want to use storytelling for data presentation, and those who work in the data visualization industry. Wow. That is such a sweet review. Thank you so much, Christy, for leaving that. And if you want to give the show a shout out because I'm keeping you company on your morning commute or whatnot, and you're finding it really valuable, please hop on over to leahpika.com slash iTunes, and you can drop a rating and review right there. All right. So I am really excited about today's guests. I know I'm excited about all of my guests, but... The reason I'm excited about today's guest is because 
He is truly a thought leader in the digital analytics industry. There are so many people that look up to him, and I absolutely can tell why his knowledge is unmatched when it comes to learning how to be a stellar digital analyst. And it turns out he's a really friendly and approachable stand-up kind of guy. So I was really privileged to have him on. And there was a little twist. I got to help him with something on the show. It was a first. So definitely stay tuned and find out what that is. Hello, hello. Today's guest is a legend in the digital analytics space. He's more than a thought leader. He is a guide for thousands of digital analysts in maturing their business savvy and their technical acumen. And as CEO and founder of Digital Mortar, he leads all aspects of their growth and development. Digital Mortar provides cutting-edge measurement and analytics tools for optimizing physical spaces. So they specialize in tracking the in-store customer journey. In addition to publishing more than 20 white papers in digital analytics, he speaks at conferences all over the world, including SMX, eMetrics, Text Analytics, the DAA Symposium Series. He won the Digital Analytics Association Award for Excellence as the most influential industry contributor in 2012. He's the host of the Measurement Minute podcast and the creator of the groundbreaking Exchange Digital Analytics Conference, which incarnated as... Digital Analytics Hub, and I had the honor of delivering the keynote at last October. That is a really spectacular event. So please welcome the Gary Angel. Hello. <laughs> Thank you so much. And that was a great keynote, too, by the way. I've attended that <laughs> conference every year it's been in existence, and I really enjoy it, too. But I, I, I thought your keynote was terrific. So um, Thank you. Great to be here. <laughs> Well, thank you. So, I mean, that's a high compliment coming from you. And um, just for some backstory, we finally crossed paths. I think it was the Marketing Evolution Experience in Vegas last year. And we got to talking about analytics and data viz platforms. And I was so glad that we finally made this happen. And I, I really got so tickled when you mentioned me on your podcast from that keynote. And I was like, Wow, I, that just happened. <laughs> Surreal. Okay. Thank you. But I'll, I'll tell you the truth. I mean, I, I spend a lot of time doing analytics, obviously, and I've been doing <laughs> it for a long time. But one of the things I've always struggled with, I'm not a really visual person. I'm a terrible design person. Um, <laughs> and I, the hardest thing for me was never, I started out as a programmer. The hardest thing for me was never doing analytics. It was never thinking about the analytics. It was never coming up with recommendations. It was always presenting it well. I think that's always been, from yeah. my perspective, the hardest struggle. And in this profession, I don't think I'm alone that way, which is why I think <laughs> what you do is so incredibly valuable. Because for most of us, this is the single hardest thing that we do. I, it's not the analysis. It's not diving in and doing machine learning. It's not working with the numbers. It's finding ways to tell the story in ways mm. that actually are understandable to people. And that's friggin' hard. And I frankly have always struggled with it personally. <laughs> well, I mean, I, I love that you're expressing, you know, where your strengths lay and where those opportunities exist. And for me, it's kind of backwards. You know, I was a great analyst, but by no means a data scientist or a machine learning expert. Storytelling seemed to come a lot more naturally to me than those. But all of it, I think, comes down to recognizing where you don't have the tools already 
um, and the natural affinity or talent. But I mean, all of these skills had to be taught from somewhere. It's just that when people think of, it's almost automatic to think of analytics training when you enter a role like this, but it's not necessarily automatic to think, oh, I'm going to need storytelling training too, because I'm going to be asked to make people care about what I do. That is so true. I think one of the things I realized is that you can tell how long someone's been in the business by sort of the things they complain about and realize they're not. <laughs> I think when people start, it's all about, well, I need to learn these tools and I, I need to learn how to do this out of the yeah. other thing from a statistical perspective. And I know they're just starting out at that point. And then if they've been doing it for a while and I hear, I need to learn how to tell stories better. I know they've been working and trying to do it because that's the kind of thing you don't hear from people who are just beginning. You only hear from people who've done it and been frustrated by the challenges yeah. around that. They feel like, you know what? I did good analysis. I came up with interesting stuff, right. but it just didn't convey to people. And I couldn't get that last mile to be nearly as effective. And it was up here, but it wasn't out there in the documents or the PowerPoints or the presentations I did. And I think that's way more common for people to struggle with. And it is, to me, a signpost that they've actually done the work and have put in the sweat to realize where their struggles are and what's really hard. Oh my gosh, absolutely. I mean, the first element of what I teach in my workshops is how to actually stop being yourself and start being your audience because we are living in our own construct all the time. So when we go in there, there is this inherent assumption that people are going to know exactly what we're talking about. Like, for example, I'll see a conclusion or an assessment written on a slide at this happened. And then the chart will show something, but it doesn't show anything that corroborates the statement that was just made. And then the audience is having to do work to try to think, wait a minute, am I just too dumb to properly interpret this chart? Or what am I missing? And I, I'll often say to them, you know, it sounds great what you're saying. I can't find it on what you're showing me. And, and they'll look at it and go, oh, you know, this was that was in another analysis I found. And I'm like, yeah, that's going to trip you up during your session <laughs> right? because they're not in your head sitting next to you during that analysis piece. I think that's hard for me, too, because I, I I'm a really good analyst and, and a lot of this stuff comes really easy to me. Actually. I've heard that. It's yeah, not, not hard <laughs> for me to do this. And um, sometimes it's like a, a basketball player who's really good at basketball often is a terrible coach uh, mm. because it's really hard for them to imagine people not just grasping these things. And yeah, of course. a lot of times when I look at the data or I look at a visualization I put together, it seems obvious to me what the conclusion is. <laughs> but you're right. It's often hard to put yourself in other people's shoes. And hey, I've had to do that over the past because I work with a lot of different companies. As a consultant, you know, as someone who sells analytics, I'm just not doing analytics. I have to sell it. So I often have to put myself in their shoes and think about why what I'm saying isn't resonating with them. Um, it's a, that's a constant challenge for me, though, yeah. not to talk the way I want to talk. And I'll tell you, one of the pleasures of going to something like DA Hub is it's a chance to talk the way I want to talk. You know, I, don't have, <laughs> I don't have to think about selling stuff or making it clear to other people. I can just assume that these are people who are having exactly the same problems, challenges and interests that I have. That's what's make that super enjoyable. But I think in my real life, in my everyday life of selling things and explaining analytics, it's hard for me to do that. And part of why it's hard for me to do that is I just don't have the empathy for the people who really struggle. Mm. 
That is such an interesting point. And empathy development, I think, is such a crucial soft skill. You know, I think Forrester was quoted as saying that 25% of new hires and promotions this year would be driven by data storytelling and soft communication skills. And it's so true. You know, we are each and, and same for the stakeholders. They're not actively trained in understanding and empathizing with us as well that we're intimidated by the questions they ask. And we're not Siri and can necessarily answer any single question that oh, you God, throw I at us better than Siri on the spot. Questions. Siri freaking drives me nuts. I mean, no, I, I, I do think I actually like it when I get into the question and answer phase. I think yeah. um, I love, I'm a good, I, I think I am a good listener. I like responding to questions. And I feel like when people are asking questions, A, it relaxes me and mm. it stops me feeling like I'm putting on a show and starts feeling like I'm engaging with them. To me, the question, I know everyone has their own presentation challenges, difficulties. For me, the hardest parts of presentations are when you get started and you get like, you know, 30 seconds in and you just feel, I, it feels very artificial to me always when I'm doing that. And that's mm. I, I, whereas once people start asking questions, if I can go back and forth, if I'm on a panel where I'm just, you know, responding to what other people are saying, that always just feels so much more natural to me. And I find I do. I think I do a much better job in that kind of setting. The, the pure, raw presentation of standing up and speaking, that came really hard to me. I was very mm. nervous when I started doing it. And even to this day, I feel like I've gotten much, much better at it. I don't get nearly as nervous. I do it so much that in one sense, it feels pretty regular to me, but it never feels as good to me as like getting in a conversation does. And I think that's that that's always been from my perspective, even in meetings, if when people start throwing out questions, I don't care if they're hard questions. I don't care if they're challenging questions. It still relaxes me. It still makes me feel better about what I'm doing. This is so fascinating because I have to say not a single person I've ever talked to has remotely liked question and answer, much <laughs> less welcome it. And I, I'm because most of the mindsets around that, I, I can hear the dread in my students' voices when they, I ask them what makes them nervous and they're like, the questions, <laughs> like this evil, like he must not be named kind of entity. And because, and I ask why, why the questions? And they'll say, because I know that they're trying to undermine me. I know they're trying to make me look stupid. Or because if I don't know the answer, I have failed. So they are already setting themselves up for failure that if they don't know every single answer, they're failing. And yeah. I've tried to work with them and say, welcome those questions because A, it indicates that they're engaged. B, if you have certain tool sets and responses in your tool belt to manage if people are trying to grandstand or are trying to, you know, undermine if, if that's what you think. But also you're getting to the heart of what they were expecting you to be talking about. So do you have any advice for turning that whole fear around on its head around questions and, and embracing it and navigating it better? You know, I, I, here's what I'll say. I think that aggressively and actively listening is the most important thing. I, I've noticed that a lot of people, and particularly speakers, I think, are very prone to this. They don't really listen carefully to what they're saying. <laughs> and I often find they're answering a question that's slightly or sometimes significantly different than what the questioner mm. actually asked. Um, as an audience participant, I find that really frustrating. It's like mm. they didn't pay close enough attention. But part of the reason I say that is, 
I actually think, again, for so many people, I'm really this way. Um, I find actively listening to other people takes me out of me. You know, I'm not the hardest part about presenting is for me, the part about feeling like I'm putting on a show that it's me and everyone staring at me mm. when I'm concentrating on the other person, when I'm listening to what they're saying, it just inherently relaxes me and makes me feel Amazing. more comfortable with what I'm doing. So I think from that perspective, you know, if you, I guess the biggest piece of advice I can say is listen carefully to what the other person is saying. Feel free to think about it a little bit. You know, I mean, question and answer is not like being up there and presenting Obviously, good presenters a lot of times use dramatic pauses. They slow down. Right. They That's hard to do, right? Yeah. But but if someone asks a question, there's nothing wrong with taking a little bit of time to think about an answer instead of just feeling like you have to blurt something back. But from my perspective, I do agree with you. Part of it is, I think, one, it relaxes me. Two, it does make me feel like the audience is engaged. I find that when you're just sitting there and no one's asking any questions, I get nervous that, you know, no one cares. Oh, about yeah. The, the crickets are deafening. Yeah, that, that's hard. <laughs> I remember once I, I was doing it. This was a, 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 was a big sales meeting. It was way back in, I think, the late 80s or early 90s. And I was doing a stock and commodity trading business. And we were presenting to a Japanese company. Um, and, you know, they flew out a bunch of people. It was a big meeting. These were pretty senior people. And I did this presentation um, and I got through it. And, you know, I did like I talked for like 40 minutes, absolutely no questions. And at the end, one of the guys near the end of the table says, so what is it you do? Oh, my God. <laughs> and I'm like, you know, I like wasted my time and, and uh. you know, I wasted their time, too. I mean, <laughs> it was one of those things where they were too polite to interrupt. But mm -hmm. what I was saying was not coming through to them at all. And and that made me feel terrible. I mean, it mm -hmm. was it was, you know, it was a really it was an awful meeting moment that sticks in my mind. It's yeah. one of the worst meeting moments I've ever had. Um, but I think from that perspective, when people start asking questions, I know what they're thinking about. And I do, you do get just contrary to what people say, there are plenty of stupid questions out there. And, I get them. <laughs> and, there, and there are people who are asking questions with bad motivations, too. There are people asking questions yeah. because they want to challenge you. There are people, a lot, I find less that. There are people who ask questions because they want to show off, right? Yes, and that that's part true. can be annoying, right? They're, they're often trying to show off how much they know. But I still feel like, you know, if you listen carefully to what they're saying and then you think about, well, what's the most what's the most interesting thing that I can say back to this audience um, about this? Even if they've made a stupid point or they've wasted some time with it, if I can extract one thing to talk about that's interesting, probably that's a win. And I think people enjoy the interactivity coming back and forth. I don't think it's just me. I think from an audience's perspective, too, that question and answer just feels more natural than someone just talking for 20 or 30 minutes going forward. So I actually think the audience engages better, too. So, no, I love the questions and answers. And I, I mean, I, if, if people are really nervous about it, not much I can say to make it better because I get nervous. <laughs> about no one's ever been able to make that better for me. But I mm. will say Take it as a compliment. When people mm. are asking you questions, that's a really good thing from a presenter's standpoint. And I, I know from my own personal perspective, that's the way I take it. You know, a lot of the way I measure my success as a speaker is at the end if I got a lot of questions. So, yeah, that, it's a good thing. Oh, I love that reframe, especially because I just came back from the Web of Quebec conference, uh, which was amazing. But there's, I guess, a difference in the cultural aspect where literally as soon as Q&A opened, half the room just left. <laughs> oh, my God. <laughs> and that I, would be really disturbing. And right? I only had one question and I was like, 
but wait, you clapped. And <laughs> probably just sucked. I mean, <laughs> probably. Uh, uh, no, no, but that, that it, would be hard. I, yeah. I would find that really distressing, I think, if, if I had that happen. So yeah. but at least here, most audiences. <laughs> Thank you, America. Thank they, you for they staying. They always ask questions, though, right? I mean, no, I, I always get a lot of questions. Uh, you, I rarely, I, I usually have to cut them off. I am blessed in that regard. Um, but I love what you're saying about the pause. I definitely advise people to embrace pauses when they're speaking, especially when they're asked a challenging question, because that thoughtful pause indicates that you are taking a moment to really craft a thoughtful answer. And it can actually supposedly increase your credibility because people are like, oh, oh, they're really thinking about it. I wonder. And it creates anticipation, which is a natural psychological trigger for attention during meetings as well as silence. You know, it's it definitely true. I am not an actor at all. <laughs> uh, but like my daughters are big into theater. I love mm. theater. Actually, I love going to theater. And obviously, that's a part of the actor's repertoire, right? That pause Silence. is incredibly important from a dramatic perspective, from a comedic timing perspective, yep. from an interaction perspective. And I totally buy that. I think it does. I, I, I think it does, from an audience perspective, indicate that you are actually thinking about what you are going to say. Mm -hmm. But hey, not just that, it gives you a chance to actually think about what you're going to say. Right? Which is <laughs> too, because unless you've actually heard the same question 70,000 times before, and it's surprising. I don't know about you. You I find I don't often get the same questions time and again. You probably hear some of the same questions pretty regularly. I, I don't do. hear that that much. So hmm. the questions often end up surprising me. And so I actually do have to think about it. And I think that's a good thing. I, yeah. I, I, I'd rather be thinking about it. I, it's probably more of a pure dramatic pause. If you're getting a question you've heard 15 times before, mm -hmm. I'm sure you can just spiel back the answer. And <laughs> At this point, um, I start including them in my deck because I'm like, and I know you're going to ask this right now. So we're just going to cover it. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, no, that's, that's incredible. And, um, in my favorite data storytelling book, it's called Good Charts by Scott Baranato, who was a guest on the show a few months ago. In terms of creating what's called a build in your data story where you're in the middle of it and you're about to reveal something interesting or surprising, he actually loves to pause there and allow people to sit and wait for just a second before you reveal the next piece of your story and have people like on the edge of their seats. That's awesome. And I, I absolutely know that works. I know for me, it's it, that that's, again, something I find pretty hard to do because I'm not naturally trained in that. It is kind of an acting skill. It feels a little artificial. Yeah, but I totally buy that it works. And not only does it work, it really makes the experience better for the audience, which is what you're trying to do. Right. I mean, I think, yeah. again, taking out of yourself, not not realizing that what you're there for is to communicate this information. And part of that is heightening the interest around the key parts. That's just a naturally human thing to do. And the more we can do those things, the better off we're going to be. Absolutely. And the other point that I wanted to call out was the being an active listener. So there are times where I'm spot on as a listener. And there are other times where my monkey brain shoots over to, oh God, I left the oven on at home or something. And it, it can be pretty bad. And I find that, you know, in terms of being an active listener, a tool that I found really helpful, and I think this is derived from NLP or neuro-linguistic programming, but it's mirroring where 
a really valuable tool is to actually mirror people's questions back to them, especially if you're in a large setting where it might be hard to hear someone. That actually not only reinforces that you captured their question, and if you didn't, they'll think, oh, okay, I, maybe I didn't explain this right. <laughs> it kind of buys you some time, but it also ensures that everyone else has heard it because it probably applies to them as well. I do that more and more as a presenter. I've gotten better about that. And that's, that's definitely a good technique. And I do think, yeah, it has both those virtues. A lot of times when someone asks a question, it's often difficult for some members of the audience to hear it. They're not as well mic'd. And so yeah. repeating it definitely makes it easier for the audience. Um, I do think it forces you to capture the gist of the question, and especially if the questioner was not necessarily very clear or long winded. Mm. Sometimes I find, you know, if you're listening closely, you'll pick up the key part or gist of the question. But maybe there's a good bet that half the audience didn't, even if they did. <laughs> exactly. But restating it and coming up with the gist actually helps the audience, too. And then they're seeing why, you know, how that maybe long rambling question could be distilled down to something that's actually pretty important and interesting. Ooh, great point. And the formula that I use for that is always starting with, okay, so I'm hearing you say that, or I'm hearing you ask, da, 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 uh, you can't possibly make a huge deck because you have to make handouts. How do you do, you, what do you do in that case? Do I have that right? And then they'll say yes or no, or they might clarify, but that is an excellent point because Sometimes those questions end up being small dissertations. <laughs> yes, yes. <laughs> which is hard, right? And sometimes there's three or four questions embedded right. in there. Sometimes, sometimes there's no question embedded in there. You just got to do the best you can, extracting something interesting out of it. Yeah. And sometimes I've even said like, wow, okay. And the question is... <laughs> <laughs> yes. Interestingly, those techniques... I, I'm curious what you think about this, but I find that those techniques are not as easy or applicable to big meetings or meet business meetings as mm. they are to presentations. You know, it's if, if someone in a meeting asks you a question, it's a little harder to do that, mm. uh, I think. Um, I don't know. What do you think about that? And are there equivalent techniques in a meeting that maybe you can use? Because, I, you know, as much as I do a fair amount of presentation, like most people, I spend a tremendous amount of time in meetings and oftentimes it's this, I almost wish I could do the same kinds of things because someone asks a big, long, rambling question. <laughs> and I, I have a hard time necessarily repeating that technique and distilling yeah. it down to this is what you this is what he asked. Right. And right. How, how do you, what do you think about that from a meeting perspective? Is it different? Is there a different etiquette to it? I love that you're asking me a question. This is so great. So I would say that, yes, in a smaller setting, it would depend on the question. It would depend on the obviousness of the question and the length. Um, if someone says, does the click-through rate say 34%? You can't be like, so I'm hearing you ask if the click-through rate is 34%. Do I have that right? You don't want to be patronizing, right? So if, if it's a smaller setting and everyone is well within earshot and it feels like a fairly straightforward question, I wouldn't mirror it back at that point. But to your point, sometimes there are these long rambling questions that don't sound like questions until maybe you find out. And when they finish, you could say, you know, okay, thanks for all of that. I want to make sure I've captured your question and make sure everyone in the room we're, that we're following, is it X, Y, Z, as distilled as possible? 
basically. Yeah. And I don't think there's anything wrong with that. I think I found that my audience, even in smaller setting, have appreciated that I've tried to make sure that I nail the question before I ramble on to some, you know, thought path that, that doesn't apply. <laughs> I, I hear you. You know, one thing I, I guess I just thought of relative to that, that I know I do sometimes that uh, uh, may be good or may be bad, but um, it sounds like you're very reactive in the sense of, or, or very careful. So it's check back with people about, is this what they had in mind? And um, I have to admit, mm -hmm. I don't always do that. And sometimes, uh, particularly if I don't think the question is great, um, what I will try to do is reformulate it in the way that I think makes the most sense. Mm, okay. And I'll just proceed on that assumption. Um, and, and I'm not sure about that. But, you know, if someone came up with something and they asked three or four things, I might say, it seems to me like what you're getting at in the heart of the matter is this. And then I'll go answer that question, which mm. hopefully was embedded somewhere in what they're saying, um, but may not have been or I may have taken a very loose interpretation and tried to put my best thing on it. I, I must admit, I do that not because I think I'm, I'm you know, not interested in answering their questions or didn't listen, but sometimes I make a judgment that I'm going to take what you said and I'm going to reformulate it what I think the most plausible, intelligent way to formulate that is. And I'm not even going to ask you if that's true or not, because I'm not <laughs> sure the answer. Um, so I do that sometimes. And yeah. I'm not sure if it's good or bad. I do find, uh, I think it helps sometimes because I do think it helps sometimes take poor questions and turn them into potentially good questions. That is such an interesting point. And I think it's always important to acknowledge the validity of questions. And what I, I love using little techniques like, okay, so I think I have your question. And I wonder if also looking at this element sheds a, a light that might get you to your outcome. Cause what I'm, I'm hearing you ask this, but I feel the outcome you're looking for might be this. Yeah. Yeah. That's a, that seems like a really nice way to do it. Cause then you've kind of, you've kind of drawn the connection for them, but you've made it pretty explicit that you heard what they actually said. <laughs> right. And you're letting them kind of save face. Yeah. And saying like, well, I'm sorry, that was a really dumb question. So we're going to move on. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I don't do that. I, I, I know, I know. <laughs> so, Gary, you came on the show with a very specific mission. You had a very specific question for me. And I'm excited because I love to be put on the spot by my amazing guests. And we even have a visual for the first time. So for the folks that'll see this on YouTube, you'll be able to see it. And you'll be able to see this on the show notes page. Um, but you had a very specific question around what the point is of visually explaining methodologies versus writing them out in an email. So can you elaborate? Yeah. So I think one of the things that's always been hard for me, I really enjoy your work on how to take data and make it more presentable, um, which is a struggle for me. I tend, like most analysts, to put a lot of data on a chart. I tend to put three or four points on. I mm -hmm. muddy everything up. I do exactly what you talked about earlier, which is I'll put stuff on there and then talk about totally different things, right? So <laughs> I think I am commonly guilty of all of the sins that you talk about on those things. Right. Um, and I find a lot of what you do on detox in the chart, highlighting what's really important, making the one point on the chart, all that's really valuable to me. And I use it all the time. Where I struggle sometimes, though, is when I'm not presenting data. And you know, I think over the course of the years, I've adopted and built a lot of methodologies for doing things when I'm selling stuff or when I'm talking to people 
in a prelude to what they're doing, I often have to sit there and explain to them, you know, what two-tiered segmentation is mm -hmm. or what functionalism is or the data quality problems that we have mm. and the, the data quality fixes that they have to do in geolocation before they can really use their data. And mm -hmm. in all of those cases, it, it's a struggle for me to come up with ways to visualize them because there isn't data. You know, when I'm selling a two-tiered segmentation, I don't have their, I don't have a segmentation to show them. I have to explain to them how the methodology is. And I just kind of felt like I was curious about how you take those same concepts and apply them to something where you don't have findings and you don't have data, but you still have to present concepts that are fairly important and process-oriented right. and need to be distilled down to their essence in some respect. Right. So this is so interesting because I get asked all the time by students, how do I explain methodologies of analysis or the why behind why it's important they do something technical if right. they don't understand the nuances of it and keep prevent them from either tuning out or feeling, you know, condescended to or feeling stupid? And or boring them to tears. I mean, right? <laughs> boring, exactly. That's always a possibility. Too, so, yeah. Of course, exactly. Um, you know, part of the framework that I teach in my workshop, it's called the presenting by boxes method. It's something I adapted from Olivia Mitchell. And that framework was really designed as a persuasive presentation framework, not necessarily geared towards data or analytics but persuasion. And ultimately, anytime we're presenting, especially if we're presenting a methodology, there must be something that we ultimately want them to do, right? So all of the same formulas that you saw go into my keynote that I presented and, and the formulas that I present, it's the chart detox is just one piece of getting data to look a, a certain visual way to be accepted. Right. But the principles that that's based in are simplicity and intentional design. So when you're visually presenting anything, you're asking yourself, every pixel that I am coloring on this slide, why am I doing it? Why am I doing it? What is the intention behind it? And ultimately, what do I want them to do as a result of this? You know, if we don't fix this data quality issue, we can't do your geolocation work. Um, what are they going to lose if they don't take an action? That fear of loss technique is one of my favorites because when you present the upside of a situation, it can be very motivating. But a lot of times that isn't enough to light that fire that you need for action. But boiling it down to a fear of loss, that's one of the most powerful psychological triggers you can use. And, you know, use it wisely. Don't say like the burning, the building will burn down if we don't do this. You are doomed, right? Yeah. But based on our best assessments, if we don't act on this by this time, you may leave this on the table. You, we, we may lose this chance, you know, things like that. Now, I know that you had a specific example of saying like, why, why even get in a room and talk live and use a PowerPoint deck to present something versus just writing something out? So that's a slightly different problem. And let me articulate, and I'm going to share my screen here, but I want to articulate the, the background problem because it's not specifically methodological. But mm -hmm. you know, one of the things that, that I often find frustrating is that I can sit down and explain to somebody in a few sentences what I think the key things are. And then I try to take that knowledge and distill it down into a PowerPoint. And A, the PowerPoint often comes off so much less impressive than <laughs> I just talked to them. And B, 
I often find that it doesn't really distill down the core thoughts in mm. a particularly good way. I struggle a lot of times with that translation of relatively straightforward verbiage. And I think one of the things, like you talk about putting McKinsey titles on charts, and mm -hmm. I know that works really well, and I know that's super helpful, but oftentimes one of my thoughts is, why don't I just put the title on there? Why do I need the chart, right? right. If I just tell them <laughs> that pay-per-click gets the most clicks, why do I need to show the friggin' chart? And you know, one of the things, and, and, and so we talked about it a little bit, and I had this, I, I had this as a, you know, fairly recent bit of work. It's a cluster analysis, right? It's, mm -hmm. a, it's a segmentation. And I spent a lot of time trying to come up with this visualization where the idea is that on the, the x-axis, you have purchase propensity of the cluster. On the y-axis, you have the gender interest of the cluster. So they're mostly interested in men's versus women's. And then I, and this is no surprise, but each cluster size is oriented toward how large the segment is. So you can see, is this a lot of shoppers or a small number of shoppers? Mm -hmm. And then I color coded them pink and blue, whether it's, you know, male focused or female focused, right? Mm -hmm. Which I thought was pretty good. And it took me a long time to come mm -hmm. up with this. But in truth, when I present this, what I usually end up saying is something like, ultimately, your clusters break up into four basic groups. You have a group of men who are very light users of the store and don't purchase much. You have a group of women who spend a fair amount of time in the store but don't purchase much. You have these core groups who you are your loyal shoppers, both men and women, that tend to do a lot of full store exploration. And then you have this tiny group over here who are super profitable, spend an inordinate amount of the store and are almost all women, right? And I've summed up this chart and I think I've distilled out sort of the key findings and from an overall perspective, there's tons of detail in there, but it makes me wonder, why don't I just say that? And how? And if that's the <laughs> point, how, how would I have expressed that point in a way that makes it better, right? Mm -hmm. And that's a real struggle for me. I find that a lot of times when I'm trying to take a fairly complicated set of data and distill it into a PowerPoint, it takes me so much time and the results are often really disappointing. I love this challenge and I'm so, so honored that you're bringing this to me. And I have some amazing ideas that I think you'll love. So before we actually take a look at the visual, there's a couple of things that I want to say about just the presentation process in general. So there's a book called Brain Rules by John Medina. And in some of the findings that he went through, he's a neuroscientist, and he found that when information is presented as text alone or just spoken, the recall of that is only about 10% several days later. But when that information is presented alongside a compelling and relevant visual, the recall of that can jump to 65%. And the recall of your information is the critical ingredient to getting Obviously, action. Obviously, that's something we want, right? Yeah. Yeah, <laughs> we no want question. action, of yeah. course. So, And that's because as human beings, vision is our most critical uh, human sense for our survival, and we've never evolved past that. So that's why it's such a powerful tool. The other thing is that we want proof and corroboration. You can stand in front of a judge and say something happens, but it's those physical, tangible exhibits that are going to ultimately convince a jury of something. And then on in, in terms of why not just call someone and tell them or why not just send an email or something like that, in terms of the act of actually presenting something live, rather than just reading something, the there's a book I read recently called TED Talks by Chris Anderson, and he perfectly articulated the the true art when you have mastered creating a presentation that truly supports delivering your message into your audience's brains. 
He said that you have this split second of when you put up a new slide, their attention is going to bounce to that slide and bounce back to you. And how well you've constructed that slide behind you in terms of immediately reinforcing what you're saying at that exact moment and how busy it is and how or how simple it is, the longer they spend on the slide versus bouncing back to you, the greater the divide you've created in their attention and it's not being on you. So the way that I create decks is that the minute I change that slide, it is completely reinforcing the words coming out of my mouth, but there's not so much that they're going to linger because I want their attention to come immediately back to me. So that's why I think your scenario is ideal for visual presentation, but I have some ideas to actually have you talk through it. So do you, would you like to share it? I, I think I have shared it here. Oh, okay. Let's see. I'm sharing all right, so we see your uh, spectrum, male to female, and low purchase propensity, high purchase propensity. So now what you have here is a title that talks about what this slide is, but it doesn't actually speak to what the chart is saying. It's not the story. Question. No right? question. Yep. So this is a fantastic thing for a handout. Right. That if someone wanted to read them to themselves offline and read maybe a narrative that you have in the notes, they could come to all of the same conclusions. But when you are in front of them, walking them through this, what happens when you put something like this is people don't know where to look first. Yep. So they start to try to analyze the chart themselves, but they're not listening to what you're saying. So the way that I would have worked with this, and if these are shapes, I get really creative with animation. Animation is my favorite way to help tease out a story and allow me to set the pace as the narrator of that story. So you could have started with something like um, a blank canvas. And, and then maybe bop in a group of clusters at a time and talk to them. And exactly. And I would actually start with uh, bringing in each of the axes first. You're okay. really pacing them through step by step. So on this side, we have this. In this, we have this. And then you can, you can start telling your story by animating in each of the segments that you want to talk about. And each time that you do that, the title of your slide is reinforcing exactly what you're saying. This is what our full store buyers looks like, high propensity and leaning towards men. Um, but dot, 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 which you can have as a way to create that story build. We were surprised to find that women's clearance only had a low purchase propensity. Right. That's when you start to get into real storytelling mechanics rather than putting a chart that isn't like a bar chart because it has a learning curve to it, right? And, and people are trying to figure out what are you actually saying? You're using that title and the pacing of your build to create that split second connection between your words and their eyes. I like that a lot. That makes, uh, that, 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 I think that would work really, really well. Let me ask you something else relevant to that, sure. I think, and, and I'll go back to a sort of anecdotal story around this. Um, 
I worked with a, a gentleman a long time ago, um, so back in, I think, the mid-90s. He was great. Um, and he was one of the few people that I ever worked with on a consistent basis who always, A, wanted the deck ahead of time, and B, <laughs> before you came in and presented. So, yeah. um, you know, th- that's obviously unusual. I think, you know, even in most business meetings, you can you generally have to assume that most people will not have done the pre-read, even if you gave them a pre-read. Mm. Um, but I have worked with people who are religious about yeah. doing a pre-read. And w- when you're, when you know your audience is that way, how does that change? Like how you would think about a presentation for them? I mean, certainly yeah. it ended up changing a lot of the way I presented, at least put de- decks together for him. Mm-hmm. Uh, what's your thought about that? And how, how, how would you handle that if you know someone is like a religious pre-reader? Uh, <laughs> And that's your core audience, obviously. I mean, this was, yeah. you know, and one of the interesting things about that was you know, he was a senior guy. And because he did it, pretty much everybody else in the meeting felt compelled to do it, too. So right. he actually showed up in meetings where almost everybody had legitimately done their homework, which was both nice and challenging. Right. I felt it. it really had to change the way we presented. But what's, what's your thought about that? How would you adapt to that? This is a fantastic question, and it is not unusual at all for stakeholders to request pre-reads. Every company I've ever worked with has clients who do that. And the reason why I'm not a fan of the pre-read is because for me, it's indicative of a trust issue. If people are asking for pre-reads, for me, they are saying they have had an experience in the past where they've gone to a meeting and not left that meeting with total clarity and an understanding of how their needs were met in that meeting. They left with more questions than answers, potentially. So I think a culture, and that's because we don't have the tools to present, (laughs) right, effectively. So as a result of that gap, a culture has been created of requesting the information in advance to prevent the chance that they're going to walk into that meeting and not understand what's going on. So if they if they read what's presented in advance, they have the chance to fill in the gaps beforehand and go in there and get the presentation that they actually want. So for me, when I started trying to do this and do this with proper storytelling techniques to keep them interested, what I was finding that if they had already read the information, they were already creating biases around things. They were drawing conclusions. And because I wasn't there to guide them when they consumed that information, they were already creating biases that would create problems during the conversation. So how I started to get around that was I developed this tool set to know that I was going to do a really bang up job of trying to answer their questions using a needs uh, collection process that I put in place. But also I started using teasers before the meeting, I started saying, I know you guys want to see the whole thing, but I just got all this training and I, I want to try something a little bit different with you guys this time. I'm going to give you a little teaser. I'm going to tell you like the general idea is that this quarter we had these kinds of changes and we saw these kinds of trends and they might not be going the direction that we want, but we also found that there are ways that we can really you know, there are really big opportunities that we have here and we can't wait to share that 
with you. So sometimes without giving away the whole kitchen sink, because if you're creating a live presentation deck properly, it won't make much sense without you. You're, it's, you're supposed to be the most ingredient, uh, important ingredient. Well, that, that's where I, I felt like, you know, in that situation, what we put in the decks changed a lot, right? I mm. mean, it, the deck needed to do something different than if we were presenting it live. Um, but I, I guess I'm a little more sympathetic to the ask than it seems like you are. And I guess <laughs> what I'll say about it is, from my perspective, it actually created really productive meetings. I mean, mm. and, and the reason I'll say that is that, you know, he was able to come to the meeting with specific, well thought out questions mm -hmm. and ideas about where he wanted drill down or where he wanted color. Um, and there was very little time wastage, right? I mean, mm. it was, we didn't get to the end of a 50 minute presentation and then have 10 minutes of him you know, asking the questions <laughs> that really mattered. Yeah. Had him asking the questions that really mattered right away. And, and going back to maybe my preference for Q&A, maybe that's one of the reasons mm. I liked it. But I thought it made for very efficient meetings in the sense that, you know, as long as we had given him a good deck up front that he could legitimately get the information out of, what we started out with was the real questions he had about why is it this way? Are you sure about this? Where do we go from here? Yeah. What, can you follow up on this? Or I need to know this too. And that turned out from my perspective to be pretty productive. So I got to say, I mean, I felt like I had to adapt to it. But I didn't dislike the experience. I thought mm -hmm. the experience in some ways made for a, a pretty productive meeting. I, I guess the hard part for me was, one, we had to change a lot. And B, <laughs> yeah. you know, that was an environment where you could kind of count on everyone doing it. Whereas my more normal experience is nobody does it or maybe one person, you know, actually looked at the pre-read. And then what are you going to do? You still you, you got to build a right. presentation for all the people who aren't going to do the pre-read. Right. So it kind yeah. of puts you in a no-win situation if you've got that mixed audience, or at least it seems like it does to me. And I want to make something clear. I'm totally sympathetic to the ask completely. And I think depending on the actual environment, if you have a two, if you're presenting to two people, then you're probably not doing a presentation. You're having more of a working session. And in that way, sending information, even in a more raw format than the one that is the main way that I teach, is, is more appropriate because you're going to want them to come prepared with those questions. But you made an excellent point. If you're in a 10-person meeting, it's unlikely that everyone would have done all that homework. And if you have some people coming to the table with biases because they read the spoiler, and they might jump ahead, and then people might get confused. So usually when I'm thinking of slightly larger meeting sizes, I find that keeping the, like keeping the microphone and really keeping that narrative power for yourself while giving plenty of opportunities for asking questions, such as building in questions, like you've come to the end of an insight and said, you know... We came up with maybe one idea for what to do about this or why this happened, but we really are interested in your perspective on, you know, what you think. Is there something in the market that we're missing? It, really building in an opportunity for that dialogue is essential. But what I find is when people have different clues into what's going to be revealed, you can end up having five, 10 different experiences for people. Totally muddy experience for everybody. I agree yeah, with that. Muddy. I, I That's a good word. That happened. I think, yeah, that, that has been my experience actually in that situation. What was nice about the one I was referencing was because this was a very senior person 
kind of set the culture of the company. It was the only case I've ever had where I was legitimately expecting every single person to have done the pre-reads in a 10 or 12 person meeting. And that actually worked really well. But I think my more common experience is, A, either nobody has or most people haven't. And that most people haven't is a challenge because you do get a very muddy experience that way. Exactly. And if you don't mind, if you can unshare your screen, that way we can uh, get our you're sick of my diagram interview (laughs) that's really helpful actually and i think uh, no it makes perfect sense and i I love the idea of doing the builds on it i think that would make it you know what one nice thing as a presenter is doing that kind of stuff just makes it easier to talk to right i mean it's hard sometimes to talk to these powerpoint slides that have a whole bunch of stuff going on and i I think what you're saying makes perfect it's a great way to do it I, i really like that great um can I just announce that the most important thing that's ever happened on the show is I helped Gary Angel with his PowerPoint. <laughs> I agree. That is the most important. Just going to lock that in. Thank you. <laughs> no, I, I absolutely love, uh, I love the example. I've never been able to really broach the idea of going through methodologies. And even what I, even the, me- the um, technique I just showed can so apply to methodologies because if you're taking people through step by step, oftentimes you'll see one big slide that says, here's a methodology and it's a mass of bullet points all at once. But instead you can show screenshots of the platform that you're looking at or maps if you're looking at geolocation, but step by step, each view is reinforcing whatever piece of the methodology you're working on. It's the same mechanics. I like that a lot. As I think about it, you know, the one place I really felt like I got pretty good at presenting methodology was two-tiered segmentation. And it's interesting because I reflect on what you said. I almost did exactly that. I had a build slide that had the one dimension, think about the who, think about the why, fill in the intersection between the two, and actually built exactly that way. But most of the other things I've done, I did not have particularly compelling presentations of. And I think, yeah, thinking about that build strategy really makes perfect sense for those. And I could see how it would apply to a lot of the things that, that... you know, I actually talk about from a methodology standpoint. Awesome. So, Gary, I call the next segment the upgrade, which is a power tip for doing our jobs of presenting data more awesomely. It could be a, a tip, a resource, a tool, some a book, something cool that you think that the audience might find really valuable. You know, I, I, I was thinking about this, and I, I'm not actually going to give a a, a book suggestion, although God knows there's a tremendous number of really interesting books <laughs> from a from a data perspective. Um, two two things, I guess I'm going to say that that I thought were interesting. Um, one is I really like your emphasis on thinking about the neuroscience of mm. this and the the social psychology, and uh, that's actually a real interest of mine. One that I almost never apply to my actual work. Uh, <laughs> but, Having said that, these days there's some fascinating literature on neuroscience, how people absorb information, how the brain actually works, that I just find intellectually interesting and kind of philosophically interesting. Yeah. But I think that's work that that's stuff that not only should people probably read, but which I do, but they should probably actually try to apply it, which I generally <laughs> don't, actually. Um, so I'm gonna say I think that's a really important tip. Um, the other thing I'm gonna say, and this 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 is something that I feel like um, is just something that I felt for a long time, which is that, hey, it, it doesn't matter how good your presentation looks if you don't actually have something important to say. Mm, and so often yes. one of the things I find with analysts is either they, they haven't really thought of anything important to say, or, and this is even more maddening from my perspective, 
they don't have the courage to disagree with the client. And I think mm. um, the, the, the truth is nobody likes delivering bad news. Nobody likes hearing <laughs> bad news. Um, but if you're going to be good at this stuff, A, you have to be willing to put yourself out on a limb and deliver bad news. And I think, you know, I, I'm certainly much more of a I work on the message part, not how to deliver the message part. But yeah. I do genuinely believe that probably the biggest flaw I see in a lot of analysts is an unwillingness to just tell the truth about mm. bad news. That's something that I really encourage people to do more of. I have no idea what the neuroscience of that is, and probably it sucks. But 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 honestly, you know, that's our job, right? Is is to give an objective view of things and to say what the data actually means, and that actually implies having a real opinion about it and the courage um, to to disagree with a client or to point out where a client is not doing well or is failing or is flat out wrong. And all of those things are hard. I'm, I'm not going to. Not going to undersell that. Those are hard things to do, but they are essential, I think, if you really want to deliver an important message to people. Gary, that's definitely one of the most unique tips I've ever gotten and a really great thing to point out. And I try to tell people there's no such thing as bad news. It's all opportunities for improvement and we get to keep our jobs. You know, no one goes home. However, there is this very real fear that people have of, you know, Clients, stakeholders get very emotional about their projects. And what I try to help analysts or presenters understand is to take responsibility where responsibility is due. If there was something, I remember being at an agency and I messed up big during a Valentine's Day promotion. And I had to take responsibility for that, you know? And there were other times where optimizations just didn't go the way that we wanted, but I didn't take responsibility. <laughs> it, it was something with the, the market conditions. And, you know, I took responsibility for how it could be conveyed and also for providing plans to rectify and get back on track. But I just at some point stopped taking, res taking blame for things that happened that were beyond my control and went in there with the confidence of knowing this isn't my fault. And I wouldn't say that, but this is what happened. And this is our best guess at helping us get back on track. And let's, let's do this together. And I think something that could really help with that courage is sometimes, not sometimes, a lot of times analysts feel kind of without a life raft during these meetings. They're, they're in front of stakeholders that are way higher on the food chain than they are. Maybe they're kind of new to the team. This is a trial by fire. And my best strategy is bringing a senior advocate into those meetings. It was recommended by Dustin Matthews, who came on the show. And that senior advocate can introduce you and create a bridge for you so that that creates a bridge of credibility between the audience and you. And they can also run some interference for you as well. Yeah, no question. That, that, when you can do that, that is incredibly valuable and reassuring. And I think that there, there's both the credibility standpoint, there's also, and I'll go back, I've, I've seen that happen. I've been the beneficiary of that from time to time, usually without any planning. It just, you know, it's kind of accidental. <laughs> but having said that, you know, I, I also find that going back to one of the points I made earlier, um, someone like that can also help you assess what the audience is thinking mm. and help connect your points with what they're thinking. Because 
Uh, a lot of times as analysts, we're not as attuned to the real considerations that stakeholders have. That senior person probably is, and as you're presenting something, they're probably better at reading the room and figuring out what the connection is to what people need to know. And I often find that, you know, again, if you listen to what they're saying, implicitly they're giving you a lot of guidance about how to tune what you're saying and how to think about it. You just got to be willing to pick up on that and, and, and hear what they're saying as they make interjections because they're maybe just, you know, without explicitly thinking about it, they're giving you pointers about what the audience actually cares about because they probably understand that a lot better than you do. That is an incredible point. And also, you're not, you're in the box when you're presenting, and they're not in the box. They're able to be an observer. Exactly. An observer. And um, that, that could be an incredible ally. So, really great points. All right. This is our final question. So, think hard. Imagine this very plausible scenario. You're browsing the new novel section at Barnes & Noble when suddenly a vortex pulls you back into the moment you're about to deliver your first presentation. What would today you say to yesterday you? <laughs> it could happen. I'd probably, I'd probably slap me. I, you know, I, honestly, when I first started presenting, I was incredibly nervous. I remember... I remember going on a radio show. I was doing a, an internet wine auction, one of the first ones ever. It's the first time I'd ever been on radio, and I was so nervous I could hardly talk. Honestly, wow. I was. Um, and I'm sure I sounded like a friggin' moron. <laughs> you know? I, no. I don't, I don't think I was a good guest, and they'd never asked me back, and frankly, I probably <laughs> wouldn't have gone. Um, no, I, I think you know the, the hardest part from my perspective about presenting was just getting over that totally irrational fear. And I don't have good advice for that because nothing mm. anyone ever said to me ever helped at all. The only thing that ever helped was doing a lot of it, you know? And, and oh, yeah. so I, I guess one thing I, you know, and again, it's it's pointless to go back to when you're young and say, oh, don't worry, you'll grow out of this. Or I will freaking good does that do anybody, right? <laughs> uh, but but so, so all the things that I think made me a terrible presenter when I first started were probably incurable. But I mm. do think that... Um, I do think that that one of the things I guess I would say going back is, and maybe this goes back to some of the things we started out with, find the kinds of things that you are comfortable doing. I've known a lot of people who are really hmm. comfortable doing meetings, but as soon as they were up in front of a p group of people on a podium, panicked, right? And mm -hmm. I totally get that. That doesn't, doesn't seem weird to me at all. Um, but maybe there's bridge things you can do where you're starting to scale out or maybe you sit down on the frigging stage and, and, and oh, yeah. do that. Find ways to find ways to either, you know, grow what you're doing or do what you're doing in a setting that makes you comfortable. I was always far more comfortable in a, a setting where I was sitting down with people than where I was standing in front of them. And I'm mm. sure that's a weird psychological quirk, but I don't think I'm alone in that. Right. Yeah. So, so I do think that it's good to work the things you're comfortable at to grow that way, you know, push the boundaries a little bit, but you don't necessarily have to throw yourself into the hardest things. And I think, um, I guess from my perspective, I would have encouraged myself to, to, you know, find ways to do what I knew I did well, like questions and answers and things like that, where I could engage with people, maybe at a different scale than just trying to present and, you know, find your own path to what makes you comfortable and go with that. I think that's a, it, it's, it's worth it. Hey, sometimes you have to go out and speak and speak and speak until you're relaxed about it. But if you can find 
you know, there are political candidates who are great at town halls and there are political candidates who are great at debates and there are political candidates mm. who are great at speeches. Find the one you're really good at and do more of that. And I think that that to me would have been, I think, been a piece of advice I might have actually been able to take advantage of. <laughs> well, I, I love the reveal of, of all of these. And, you know, what you say about practice is interesting in that something important to understand about neuroscience is that our brain is a supercomputer and it's constantly building data sets. And we are analysts, so we are extra analytical. And when we are removing our emotions from an analysis, like an A-B test, that's fine. But as soon as our emotions become conflated with our own processors that we have, we tend to completely misinterpret things. And um, we want to start building a data set that says, I'm going to present today. I am afraid because I'm going to get fired because I'm not going to know the answer to the questions. They're going to hate my deck. They're going to fall asleep and I'm going to get fired. And that's like this mindset, this outcome that we come in, the hypothesis that we're going to get fired. But the more data you build by embracing every single opportunity you have to present, you're going to build a data set that has a trend line that says, you're not going to get fired after this meeting. Unless <laughs> you really suck. No, people are amazingly forgiving about yeah. things like that. Yeah. I, I do agree with that. And I do think that people get used to almost anything. And I know that one of the big speaker, one, one of the big fears, one of the number one fears people have is speaking, right? And, yes. And I'm, I'm totally not immune to that. In fact, I, I totally embrace that fear. But just like, hey, if you're in combat all the time, you get used to combat. And yes. if you do a lot of it, it, you will get used to it. I still get nervous, but not not like I used to. And it yeah. doesn't impair me from doing what I can do now. So that part, I think you do have to force yourself to do it. But I do think, like I say, I think that you can make it easier on yourself and mm. still accomplish. So I do think the example of political candidates is mm -hmm. a good one in the sense that not everybody is going to be a great stemwinder speaker. But, you know, maybe town halls really fit them. And if that's what fits you, go for it and yeah. do those, you know, find find the ways that, that take advantage of what you're really good at. And then you could probably grow the confidence in the other things as you go along. So, yeah, I to totally agree. And that's something I've struggled with my whole life. And I I rarely get terribly nervous now, but it happens every now and again. And I hate myself when it happens because there's not even a reason for it. Right. You talk about people being afraid of being fired, but mostly the fear is just totally irrational. It's exactly. Exactly. Identifying that is key. Oh, Gary, this was amazing. So much valuable stuff dropped here. Thank you so much. Unfortunately, our time has run out. So time has run out. Yes. <laughs> I know. So please tell the listeners where they can keep up with you. Ah, well, you know, the, the big thing that I'm doing these days that I would love people to tune in on is the measurement minutes. These are like one, yeah. to, one to one and a half minute podcasts. Um, they're out there on iTunes and Google. Just search for the measurement minute. I really enjoy doing them. I mean, they're short. They're bite sized. They love it. Pretty high level. But I, I have a lot of fun with them. And, and I, I release two or three a week. And hey, if people want to check those out, that'd be great. I think that that's something that I'm, I'm actually having a lot of fun doing and would love to build an audience around. Awesome. Well, we'll definitely put the links to that on the show notes page. Thank you so much for your time today. It's really been an honor and I hope that our paths cross again. Oh, my pleasure. Thank you so much. And hey, thanks for the advice on the charting. That was really helpful. I, re I really, <laughs> I am going to steal that and use so it. Welcome, so. Gary Angel. <laughs> All right. So thanks welcome. a lot. <laughs> Thank you. 
All right. So that was a refreshing change from being the one to ask all the questions. And I really enjoyed getting to help the Gary Angel with his PowerPoint. Going to milk that for all it's worth. So to catch all of the links and resources mentioned in this episode, please visit the show notes page at leahpika.com slash 043. I would love if you could leave me or Gary a comment or suggestions because I want to hear about the challenges you face when you're presenting your big ideas and your deep insights. Again, if you like what you've heard, hop on over to iTunes to subscribe, leave a rating and review, which help other practitioners like yourself get this very valuable information. Or you can tweet me a question for the show by including my Twitter handle, which is at Leapika, and including the hashtag PBM, as in peanut butter munchies. <laughs> and today's presentation inspiration is from Leo Babauta, and he says, simplicity boils down to two steps, identify the essential and eliminate the rest. My take is that simplicity was really a recurring theme for today's interview. And as practitioners, we often think that our stakeholders won't understand our insights unless we explain the entire complexity of the analysis, all of the steps that it took, or all of the technical details of what we're proposing. And what I think we saw with Gary today, and what I think this quote really encapsulates is, to remember what is essential for your audience to understand your information so that they learn to trust you and they're inspired to take action. That's it for today, listeners. I'm wishing you an amazing spring. And please remember, viz responsibly, my friends. Namaste and namago. And that's a wrap. This happens to me all the time. Um, <laughs> okay. This is um, going to be great. I can say that I helped Gary Angel with the PowerPoint. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so why the frick did I need to charge, right? Why, why couldn't I just tell you this, you know? Mm. Oh, interesting. Hey. Cool. Okay.